This is UCD Business Impact, the new podcast series from UCD College of Business, Ireland's leading business school. And each week, we will be joined by world-renowned academics from across the College of Business, as well as industry leaders, to discuss the most compelling business issues facing Ireland and the world. Our experts each week will offer insight, spark curiosity, and challenge you to rethink how you do business in a changing world. I'm your host, Emmett Oliver, financial editor and journalist and lecturer at UCD College of Business. Now, on this podcast over recent weeks, we've been looking at all an assortment of industries and how they've been dealing with the challenges of COVID-19, everything from retail to banking and the general macro economy. But there's no other industry, I think it's fair to say, than aviation that has borne the brunt of this crisis. We've got aircraft being grounded, routes cut, staff, of course, being laid off. And really, there is a big debate about how sustainable air travel is in the long term, even beyond this pandemic. And a man who's joining me today on the Business Impact podcast knows a little bit about this crisis, but he also knows about previous ones too and can make the connections between them all. And that's Patrick Blaney, who chairs the Aircraft Leasing Finance and Law Program at UCD Smurfit. Patrick is also a former chief executive of the GPA Group, one of Ireland's most celebrated aircraft leasing organizations um, throughout the 1990s and made global headlines and really set the whole scene on its way, a lot of people who worked in GPA now populate the uh, senior leadership teams in a number of the aircraft leasing companies or leasing companies in Ireland now and overseas as well. So you're very welcome to the podcast, Patrick. Uh, thank you very much, Emma. Looking forward to um, to this conversation. So am I. And one of the things I want to start by looking at is just let's look at the immediate, the next few weeks, um, and then we'll kind of spiral out from there into those bigger themes about whether air travel is sustainable in the way it used to be. We'll look at a little bit of climate change, and we'll also have a a kind of a reflection on what is the true price of an airline ticket maybe later on. But I want to start with the immediate environment we're in, the COVID-19 pandemic. How safe is air travel? At the moment, we're talking about quarantines, temperature checks, all sorts of measures to make air travel more palatable to the traveller, both business traveller and the leisure traveller. Where do you stand on the safety of the actual product itself at this stage, Patrick? Just dealing with the air uh, circulation issues first. Like, People don't realize, I think, there's, there's a view that aeroplanes, because you're in a confined space and because you're all breathing the same air, that, you know, if anybody gets on a plane with a 180 of their fellow travelers, that by the time the aeroplane arrives at its destination two hours later, everybody on the plane has been infected. Now, the reality is a bit different from that. Like, obviously, an aeroplane is a confined space, um, and so there is exposure to the transmission of disease within an airplane. But what an airplane's air circulation system is doing is it's re- the air that's in the plane is being essentially um, circulated. There is being changed on average between every two and every four minutes while the airplane is in operation. And that uh, air is circulated from the top of the aircraft fuselage down and uh, goes exits uh, on the floor level where it passes through HEPA filters. Now, these are filters designed to remove 99.99% of the bacteria and virus inherent in the, in the uh, droplets. And so that's, that air circulation system is of a similar order to that which is available in hospitals. It's a very significant improvement on offices, and other spaces, except for outdoor spaces, obviously where the air circulation would be of far greater quality. So 
air travel in itself, that being on the plane, sitting on the plane, you are potentially exposed only to the people in your immediate vicinity. And that's why most um, airlines now in the post-COVID-19 environment are mandating a requirement for face masks, which will have the effect of minimizing the distribution of those droplets. And the air system is within the plane, it's going from the top to the bottom. It's also aided by uh, the seat back. So you aren't really exposed to the person behind you or uh, you're only really uh, exposed to the people beside you. There has been talk about taking out the middle seats. Um, I know a lot of the the low fares airlines, one of them which we, we both know well, are, are very, very not um, too keen on this idea. But do you think the airlines may be forced to spread people out a little bit more to make the, the product sustainable in the next sort of, say, year? Well, I, I think there's a couple of things. There's a couple of things going on at the same time. One is, as a traveler, what's my perception of the risk I am taking getting onto an airplane? So there's, uh, would I prefer that there was nobody in the seat beside me in the middle seat? Probably the answer to that question for most travelers would be yes. But would I be prepared to pay double the fare I'm currently paying on that plane to have that seat effectively removed? The answer to that question is probably no. So I think what's, what's going to happen is a number of things, both the physical movement of people on the plane, both the improvement in air circulation. Like if you put the air vent on over your head, which many people do on an airplane because they just like to have a flow of air across their face, that also is forcing the air downwards. And if the passengers, all passengers do that, or the system on the plane was changed such as that happened automatically, that would have an improving factor on the air circulation and the, the lack of problem with, with droplets. But yes, I, I think, you know, there certainly is a public perception. And to an extent, that public perception is also matched by, you know, the facts. Like you're in a confined space in an aeroplane. You are at risk to those people immediately beside you. But you are probably more at risk to the people immediately beside you in the taxi out to the airport, in queuing up to get through security, in standing on the air bridge getting onto the plane, and all the paraphernalia that goes on around, you know, people jostling on the plane to get to their seat and to put their bags in the overhead locker. Once you're physically seated in your seat on the plane, I think the risks are far less. But safety is something that's absolutely at the heart of how aeroplanes are designed, manufactured, operated, and regulated. And I have no doubt in my mind that airlines, airports, regulatory bodies will adapt to this new post-COVID-19 environment and will take steps to ensure that, you know, the process by which you go from the curbside at an airport to sitting in your seat is, you know, made as safe as possible. And manufacturers and airlines, the, the aircraft, because there's really only two manufacturers, Aeroplanes themselves have, broadly speaking, identical air circulation systems. So the Boeing system, the Airbus system, they're pretty similar. And um, what might change in the next stage is adding higher levels of circulation and perhaps changing, you know, making it more passenger specific. But I, I have no doubt that airlines will adapt to this challenge. That's fascinating that the fact that you have two manufacturers gives you that commonality in the product. But I wanted to step back a little bit. You've seen a lot of crises. We've, we've, we've been around for 9-11. We've had the Gulf War, which had a huge cataclysmic fallout in the 1990s. We had the Icelandic ash cloud, 
not too long ago, um, in the earlier part of this decade, Grimm's vote, and I think uh, most people have forgotten the name at this stage. Patrick, you've lived through these, you've been a manager through some of these. Just put this current context in, in, in context for us, this current crisis. I mean, we're going to see uh, higher airfares, that seems to be accepted. We're going to see, as you've just been referring to, change in the configuration of cabins. We're going to see the price of aircraft, whether to buy outright or lease them, change. So is this something like we, we, we kind of we saw the peak of air travel in recent years and we're never going to get back to those levels? Or do you not take that view and take a view that, yes, it'll be a long road, but we'll get back to the levels of activity that we had before? Well, obviously, you know, this, this in my 30 plus year uh, career in aviation finance, I've never seen something as severe or that happened as quickly as this one has. So, you know, my belief at this point, based on everything I've seen to date, is that this is probably for aviation, you know, the once in a hundred year event. We're definitely un in uncharted waters as far as understanding how, when, and to what extent, and in what shape the recovery and air travel will occur. But it is my belief, uh, based on everything I've seen in those 30 years, is that while this is the biggest downturn in it by some magnitude, I think the underlying reason why people get on a plane and go from A to B still exists. And because you know, the economy continues to grow, half of the world's population is in Asia who travel you know, one twentieth of the, of the number of times that we in Western Europe do, I see air travel in time coming back to its 2019 levels and continuing to grow. So I don't see this as changing forever the business model of flying. I think it's definitely going to change how we do it. And it's going to change how planes are manufactured. It's going to change all the processes around it. But I think ultimately, my belief ultimately, based on people's innate desire to travel, the wish and desire to you know, enjoy and see each other's cultures around the world, the need in the business sense to travel, all those things will restore, will, will come back and travel at some stage, whether it's 2021, 2022, or 2023, it will get back to 2019 levels. Okay, well, that's fascinating. Let's, let's take out one of those components, which is vital. You talked about the business model and affairs that flow from that. Uh, let, let's just go down into that for a little bit. I mean, we have thought for many years, was this period coming into this crisis, you could literally go anywhere. There was routes pretty much every major capital and smaller city in the world. Like drinking a glass of water, you could just jump on a plane, go there. The tickets were very competitively priced. You could possibly get two or three flights a day even to the longest haul destination out of Europe. It, so, you know, the price attached to that, a lot of people have said, wasn't fully pricing in the climate effects wasn't fully pricing in a lot of the business model challenges that the airlines themselves had. So in terms of fares, is, is that the one thing you can say is going to be irreparably changed, that we're going to have to pay a lot more to go either short haul or long haul in your view? Obviously, if you're Michael O'Leary and your business model is all around low fares flying, he still has, irrespective of what happens to the interior of an aeroplane to meet COVID, post-COVID-19 requirements, he still has an extremely efficient, probably the most efficient business model airline for his type of airline in the world. And so I think low fares are what stimulates demand. And what the airline industry has been consistently able to do 
really since the 1970s and when deregulation occurs, they have passed on to the consumer every single efficiency benefit that they've been able to generate. Just to give you some examples, aeroplanes, even 10 years ago, flew far fewer hours per day than they fly today. So an aeroplane, if you think of it, an aeroplane's got 24 hours in which to operate. 10 years ago, many aeroplanes flew less than eight or nine hours per day. Now aeroplanes are flying something of the order of 12 to 14, and in some cases, 15 hours per day. So the same plane is transporting significantly more passengers. Another feature is load factors. In the old days, you bought a ticket. You could use the ticket anytime you wanted. If you didn't show up, it didn't cost you anything. So aeroplanes flew around the world with, you know, 60% load factor. So only 60% of the seats on the plane were full at any point in time. Now you buy a ticket for a specific flight on a specific day at a specific time. And if you don't show up, that money is lost. And so the airlines, all the airlines are selling seats until they get to 100% capacity. And now the planes fly at 84, 85% load factor. So not only has the plane number of hours in, in service gone from, let's say, 8 up to 12, which is a 50% increase, the capacity within the plane when it's flying has gone from 60% to 85%, so another approximate 50% increase. And then on top of all of that, aeroplane manufacturers have you know, reconfigured planes, maybe not to every passenger's delight, but they certainly know how to fit more passengers into the plane than they did in the past. Seats are much thinner. You can fit more people into a, a given space. Also, planes have gotten slightly bigger. So the old 737-200, which was the, the, the standard aeroplane of the 1980s, has now been replaced by an Airbus A321, which carries 220 passengers versus the 140 or so that were in the 737-200. So all of, the, all of those things have meant significant improvements in efficiency, and that's driven, that's gone almost exclusively to the passenger in the form of lower fares. And how, much more, how much more juice can be, can be squeezed out of that lemon? I mean, you've mentioned even just there, five or six specific items. Is there anything else left to go? Well, what's happening now with uh, low-cost carriers, and um, uh, we see it with, with Aer Lingus, but we see it with people like Wizz Air in uh, Eastern Europe. And Wizz Air and people like um, Spirit Airlines, another low-cost carrier, you see it with Michael O'Leary's move from the 737-800 to the 737-MAX-8. What's happening is aeroplane sizes are going up by approximately you know, 15 to 20 passengers. Exactly the same operation but the same, but now the flight's got, let's say, 20 more seats. And Wizz Air, for example, is taking more A321s, which is the bigger version of the Airbus A320 aircraft. So you're seeing a slight upgaging of planes going from, let's say, 180 seats to like 200 seats. So that's where the efficiency, that's the next level of efficiency that's coming into air travel, which has just begun, hasn't actually yet been delivered because Michael Leary has not yet taken an, a max uh, eight, they've not been delivered to him yet, and very few A321s um, have gone to people like uh, Wizz Air just yet, but they are coming. So further efficiencies are there. I suppose what I'm saying is, Patrick, is, and I agree with you, they have spent decades uh, pushing down airport charges, making aircraft bigger, uh, getting fuel efficiencies, and, and you're saying all of that has flowed through to cheaper fares. I'm just saying, I wonder how much more of that can be done 
And if that can't be done, there are other things on the other side of the ledger, which we can discuss now in, in terms of climate change that are coming down the tracks that are going to push up against those efficiency gains that they have been making and are hoping to make in the future years. And is that where, you know, is that where the crux is for the industry in your view? Another feature that I haven't mentioned is, is how planes themselves have become much more fuel efficient, how aeroplanes are becoming less costly to maintain because instead of being aluminium cans where you've got problems with corrosion and condensation, they're now, you know, carbon fiber uh, fuselage, much less prone to all those types of risks. So manufacturers are making planes cheaper to maintain, easier and cheaper to maintain, while at the same time making the average size of plane slightly bigger. So, so don't, don't discount the fact that efficiencies continue to be provided. And remember, only about 30% of the world's airlines are low-cost carriers like Ryanair and EasyJet and Wizz Air. 70% of the world's airlines are you know, network carriers, are, are airlines with completely different business models. I mean, to, to, to paraphrase Harold Macmillan, you've never had it so good in terms of air travelers. The other one we probably should mention is a lot of time on long haul, those in the front of the cabin in business class were subsidizing the lower fares in economy. Isn't, isn't that another piece that uh, has guaranteed these lower fares you're talking about? Absolutely. I think if you look at an aeroplane as real estate, and if you look at the typical configuration of um, a network carrier plane being you know, 20 to 25% um, business uh, travelers, you know, people in business class, and the other 75 to 80% being economy uh, passengers, the real estate uh, distribution in the plane is more like 60-40. So the economy passengers are in 60% of the real estate and the business passenger who wants more services included in the ticket price has more real estate for that seat. And so, yes, you know, network carriers business model is not selling the seat and the, the more seats, the better. You know, pack them in and pile them high. A network carrier carrier's business model is more about revenue maximization by providing not just the seat, but the services, you know, all the other bits and pieces that go into travel, you know, the, the food offering, you know, the, the, the loyalty programs, all those things that, that add value to a business customer. You can buy a base fare, which is just you get on the plane, which are handbag, that's all you've paid for, no advanced seating, no, you know, not at the front of the plane or at the back of the plane, or you can go all the way to the other side of the equation, which is um, a business class passenger who gets on last, who has a dedicated seat, who earns miles you know, from his business travel, who gets fine dining, all the other good things. So network carriers are looking to maximize revenues across all of the services and products which the consumer wants and is prepared to pay for. Now, Patrick, let me just bring you down a, a slight side road for a second, which is the aircraft lessors, the companies that provide the equipment to the industry. I mean, a lot of them have had incredible um, gravy train years in terms of returns. It's been a very profitable industry. People are paid well. It has a certain glamorous reputation. And um, we have a lot of the main key companies based here in Dublin. We've built up an incredible cluster of air, aircraft leasing companies in Dublin and other parts of the country. Talk to me where they are at. They're sitting looking at these leases that they have with their uh, carrier customers. They must be getting increasingly worried about the next two or three years. Today, we have 25% of the traffic we had in 2019 globally. And so 75% of approximately 22,000 aircraft, there's 22,000 commercial jet aircraft in the world working for airlines. 
So today, 25% of those aircraft are required and 75% of them are effectively grounded. And as those planes come back, obviously that statistic will, will change. So today it's 16,000 airplanes are surplus to requirements, but as traffic comes back, that number keeps on going down. And most airlines, the, the strategy which I hear consistently from chief executives of airlines is that they're all targeting to make themselves such that at 50% of 2019 traffic levels, they're viable. They're cash neutral at 50% of the traffic they had in 2019. And so everything after that becomes um, cash positive, you know, recovering the losses that they've made, repaying the loans that they've received from governments and banks, etc. But at least by December 2020, they will be cash neutral at approximately 50%. And what, so, happens to the, what happens to the capacity gloss, those extra planes that aren't in the sky? Who, who's taken the hit on those? Okay, well, I think, you know, a lot of airlines own their aircraft. A lot of lessors own aircraft. The, the le aircraft leasing business, though, you have to remember that the aircraft leasing business is long-term contracted rent. So if you're any of the big aircraft lessors, you typically have aeroplanes leased for between six and eight years to your airline customers. On the average remaining lease term is something between six and eight years. So the airline is obliged to pay you the rent on those aircraft for the next six to eight years. If you have an aircraft that's coming back from an existing customer in the first half of 2020 that you've not already contracted to a new airline, those aeroplanes are going to sit on the ground. But if you look at all the lessors, all the big lessors in Ireland, and all the, they've been preparing for a downturn for some time. And so they have placed, in many cases, their aircraft out through the end of 2021. So they have very few aircraft contractually coming back to them off lease between now and the end of 2021. So they're only going to encounter problems with those aircraft if the airline effectively goes out of business. And some airlines will go out of business. There's already you know, Virgin Australia, uh, which is being restructured in bankruptcy. There's LATAM, which is probably the biggest Latin American airline, a Brazil-Chilean-based airline, um, owned significantly by uh, Delta, uh, although that shareholding has now essentially been wiped out. Avianca in Colombia, Thai International in Thailand, is going through, it's, it's a government-owned airline, but it's, it's going through a bankruptcy process. Norwegian has just completed a debt for equity swap, um, essentially financed by its creditors. And we've seen Lufthansa, KLM, uh, Air France, and Alitalia all essentially being bailed out by their governments. So what's happening is there are airline failures, and there will be airline failures, and the lessors will get the aircraft back and there is no new home for those aircraft in the short term. Um, but the vast majority of their uh, fleet is leased to, you know, in many cases, up to 70% to core airlines of the world, you know, flag carrier, network carrier equivalents. And those aircraft are going to remain in service. Um, and those aircraft are going to be retained by the airlines that have committed to them. So one of the things I think for, for listeners who aren't as familiar with the industry as yourself is that the leases are very much on the side of the lessors. So uh, you made a, a, an analogy to rent and rental income. 
It's not like property. You cannot hand the keys back in most instances. Force majeure is not on its own enough for the airline just to say, look, there's a pandemic, have your, your aircraft back. So these leases, they do lean on the side of benefiting the lessors. Would that be a fair um, summary? Yeah, like I think you have to regard leasing as a section, essentially it's financing. So, so the operating risk of the business is being taken by the airline. That's the nature of the thing. The financing and asset risk is being taken by the lessor. And so in order for that, um, that you know, commercial transaction to take place, to, to occur in the first place, those risks are divided up in that way. So the airline takes the operating risk. It cannot give the aircraft back ahead of schedule unless it's agreed to by the lessor. It's a bit more like a mortgage versus renting a property. Isn't Absolutely. It? Absolutely. So the expectation is that the people who own the plane will continue to pay the rent, will continue to generate enough money to pay the lease rental payments and from the, you know, the sale of tickets to their passengers. Now, I think it's important to say that the lessors are part of the solution to COVID. And I've looked in the last 24 hours at one of the lessors' quarterly reports. And in that quarterly report, this lessor, which is a significant company, has given rental concessions to the tune of $600 million to its customers to help them through this cash crisis. So it's giving them some assistance, up, upwards of three plus months rentals um, to, to bridge the gap that the airline has until it can get back flying at cash break-even levels again. So the lessors are suffering some of the pain. They're going to get aircraft back from the customers that default or go bankrupt or which don't continue to operate the aircraft. And they're assisting their customers that they have, you know, safely and prudently um, by giving them rental concessions to help through this cash negative period. Patrick, um, I want to spend the last part of the podcast, and we can't do it full justice. You'd need several hours to get through it, but just discuss um, the climate change issue that's coming over the hill at this industry, both airports, carriers, and lessors, as you've been mentioning. A lot of people asking, what is the true price of an airline seat if you take into account the burning of aviation fuel, which does obviously produce not just CO2, but a lot of other um, pollutants into the atmosphere? You know, campaigners, governments, a lot of people who are listening to this podcast will say the true price of an airline seat is not being priced properly and fully. And in the future, if this industry wants to stay at its current levels of air traffic volumes, it needs to, you know, reflect those externalities that are happening. So it needs to either price up the tickets, there may be a look at an aviation tax, there may be carbon offsetting, emissions trading, whatever their solution is. You've mentioned some of the, um, the, the, the way the airlines or the carriers themselves, the airplanes can be configured, will help. We've had winglets, fuel efficiency, etc. So how do you answer that, you know, that clamor for airlines to be pricing their tickets according to what they produce in terms of their environmental damage that the industry is responsible for? Okay, well, like a couple of facts probably wouldn't do any harm. Air travel today contributes about 2.4% of carbon emissions. And of that 2.4%, about 1.3% is what I would call long-haul international travel. Um, and so at the moment, there is no more efficient way to move people from A to B than by, than, other than by air, in terms of cost, time, all the other things. 
that go into pricing up that equation. Manufacturers, aircraft manufacturers, most of the, they, they've gone to enormous troubles to, and huge billion dollar investments to make their airplanes more fuel efficient, produce less uh, NOx, um, require uh, everything being more recyclable, um, using materials that are not uh, prone to uh, environmental damage so they have more than one use. So the manufacturers, you know, at the moment we're going through a new engine um, cycle. So we've just started to see the delivery of engines which are up to 20% more fuel efficient than their predecessors. So they're 20% more fuel efficient. They're more than 20% more efficient in terms of NOx emissions. And equally importantly, they're probably 50% quieter than the previous generation of aircraft. So airport noise and all those kind of concerns. And it's still at today, 2020 levels, 2.4% of, of carbon emissions come from planes. The problem with planes um, per se is that with air traffic doubling every 15 or so years, if this past history trend is going to continue into the future, obviously that 2.4% emissions, even allowing for further efficiencies in engines over time, it probably is going to double the number of emissions that come from air travel. That's so, what's, so, so what's the solution? If, if the gains on the fuel side are being you know, rolled back by the increase in volumes of traffic, so you're, you're kind of cycling to stand still almost, and you're not really making a net gain in terms of the emissions, or is, is it an electrical aircraft or electric powered aircraft, battery powered, is there, ethanol solutions, well, where, where will the industry go to find a, find a fix for this? Well, it's, it's spent a lot of money also looking at what I would call both electric battery operated and hybrid solutions to, to try and make it, you know, go in the direction that the automotive business has gone. And the problem is, is that the, the jet engine, although it uses carbons, it's the power to weight ratio that is so important. And to, to, to take the example of of uh, Formula One racing, where obviously power to weight ratio is very important. There's now Formula E racing. And the battery um, used to, to power a Formula E race car currently weighs 70 times more than the equivalent jet fuel system for equal energy output. So if you put that into a plane, it's just not viable. You can't have enough batteries that the weight will not allow you fly the plane the distance it needs to fly. So electric power in an aeroplane, it has been uh, tested, it is operating, but for extremely short range, less than 100 nautical miles, doesn't deal with long haul travel. That's so, out, so that's out, okay, so that won't work. So, so what, what the airline industry has done, it's come up with this thing called Corsia. And Corsia is essentially a carbon offsetting arrangement. It's, Corsia stands for Carbon Offsetting and Reduction Scheme for International Aviation. It's an UNICAO initiative. It's designed to essentially have airlines be required to buy offsetting carbon emissions such that they remain carbon neutral at 2020 levels. So the, since there is no other way of transporting people efficiently other than using jet fuels, the industry's approach to this is to do carbon offsetting. So in essence, buying carbon credits from 
other parts of, of industry and the environment so that they can remain carbon neutral. That's their method until such times as, you know, an appropriate technology comes along. Perhaps it's carbon, perhaps it's um, um, hydrogen uh, related, which makes flying, you know, power to weight ratio work with a different fuel source. So essentially the industry is putting itself in a deep freeze and holding its current position, waiting for a technological advancement to catch up and, and provide it with some new answers. And it's, it's spending, you know, billions of dollars every year investigating those technologies and applying them to flight. So it's not standing still waiting for somebody else to come up with the answer. The manufacturers and the airlines know that this is an important consideration for the future. They must get to the point of at least, even if their emissions are increasing, they must find ways of offsetting those emissions so that the, the aviation industry per se, yes, it comes at a price in terms of carbon, but it pays for that price in terms of buying other people's technology, allowing it to offset the emissions. Okay, Patrick, well, listen, thanks for wrapping up on that. And you've gone through, you've delved down below a lot of very gloomy headlines there in terms of um, aircraft being grounded, routes being cut, staff being laid off as well. You, you've sort of shone a light on the reality of somewhat of a recovery in Asia. So the picture is probably little less stark than we might see in our media in this part of the world. And thanks very much for coming on the podcast and, and just shining those light and, and bringing those different trends alive for us in the aviation sector. Thanks for joining us on the podcast today. Thank you very much, Emma. It's my pleasure.